You're listening to the St John's Diamond Creek Podcast. This episode presented by Senior Minister Tim Johnson. Reading from Job 38, 1 to 21, and from Job chapter 40, 1 to 14. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind the doors, when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment, and wrapped it in dark darkness, in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place, that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal, its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me, if you know all of this, what is the way to the abode of light and where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely, you know, for you were already born. You've lived so many years. And over to Job 41 to 14. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him accuse as God. Answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like this? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. If you could ask God one question, what would you ask him? Imagine that you had a face-to-face meeting with God and he said, Ask me any question and I'll answer it. What would you ask? You know, people sometimes say, when I get to heaven, the first thing that I'll ask God is, you know, there's some big looming question that they need God to answer. 
a Christian mentor of mine told me that um, when he gets to heaven, the first question that he will ask God is, why did you let Archbishop David Penman die? Uh, David Penman was the Archbishop of Melbourne. He was a great promoter of mission and evangelism. And he died in office from a heart attack at age 53. My mentor still couldn't understand how that had happened. It made no sense to him in the scheme of God's plans for his church. And years later, he wanted to ask God, why? What's your big question for God? Maybe you've got a big theological or philosophical question that you'd ask. But maybe your question is more personal. Why did you let my mum die? As we saw last week, Job has a question that he wants God to answer. And his question is, why? Why am I going through all this suffering? Job's been open and honest with God. He's told him how he feels. He's brought his complaint before him. He's asserted his innocence before God. And he's even suggested that he and God should come together in court to have it out, to argue their respective cases. As far as Job sees it, if he is innocent, as he believes he is, then God has some explaining to do. And he's prepared to go face to face with God. Bring it on. So when Job finishes speaking, there's an anticipation that God will reply. But this doesn't happen straight away. In chapters 32 to 37 in Job, someone else speaks. Uh, another friend called Elihu decides to throw in his 10 cents worth. He reaffirms what the other friends have said, that Job has done wrong. But he also rebukes Job for adding rebellion to his sin by standing up to God and complaining to him. And he mocks Job's idea of having it out with God. God isn't going to answer you. The whole idea of a face-to-face -face with God is ridiculous, Job. But then in rejection of what Elihu says, God does speak. In chapters 38 to 41, God addresses two speeches to Job. But it's hardly the answer that Job was expecting. God doesn't explain the mystery of suffering. He doesn't even seem to directly address Job's situation. In fact, the majority of these chapters focus on the creation. We saw that in chapter 38. God's first words to Job are, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. God criticises Job for his lack of knowledge. Rather than his words shedding light on the situation, they've darkened it. Job's been planning on cross-examining God about his situation, but instead, God is the one who asks the questions. And for the next two chapters, God bombards Job with questions designed to show that God is in control and Job isn't. So chapter 38, verses 4 to 7, Who lay the foundations of the world and designed it all? Verses 8 to 11, 
who controlled the sea so that it would fill parts of the earth, but not all of it. Verses 12 to 15, who makes the sun rise every day? Verses 16 to 18, have you walked on the floor of the ocean? Have you been to the gates of death? Can you get your mind around the enormity of the earth? God's questions continue in this vein. You know, he asks questions about stars and rain and thunder and lightning and numerous wild animals. And the purpose of it all seems to be to show Job that the world is a complex mechanism. It has lots of moving parts and there are parts of the world that don't even seem to make sense. Have a look at chapter 38, verses 25 to 27. Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? See, if I was in the driver's seat of this world rather than God, I'm not sure I'd do that. What's the point of sending rain to the desert where no one even lives? But God does that. Or in chapter 39, verses 13 to 18, there's this rather comical description of, a, of an ostrich. You know, why would God create such a ridiculous creature as the ostrich? If I was in charge, I might have left that out, but God didn't. It was part of his purpose for the diversity of creation. So in this first speech, God aims to expand Job's mind. He wants him to think about the complexity of the physical creation. He challenges him about whether he made it, whether he fully understands it, and whether he can control it. Now, this question of control comes up again in God's second speech. There, God draws attention to two creatures, uh, behemoth and leviathan. There's been lots of debate about what these creatures actually are. Are they real creatures, possibly the hippopotamus and the crocodile? Or are they mythological creatures, which people at the time would have believed in? Well, whatever the identity of these creatures, the point's the same. These are creatures that are beyond human ability to tame or control, but God holds them in check. He made them and he can control them. And see, that's the vast majority of God's two speeches. They focus on the creation and its complexity, on the fact that God made it, he understands it, and he controls it, and that Job and we humans don't. It's not what we were expecting as an answer from God. And to be honest, you might feel that it's a little unsatisfying, right? We want to know why God allows suffering to happen, not about the magnitude of creation. And we might be left asking the question, what's the point of all this? Well, the closest we get to an answer is at the start of chapter 40. This is the start of God's second speech, and it's the middle of the entirety of all that God has to say to Job. 
which in Hebrew thinking is often where the heart of a matter lies. At the start of chapter 40, God invites Job to respond. You wanted an argument with me, Job. Well, then you need to respond to what I've said. But Job has nothing to say. He puts his hand on his mouth and he says, I'll say no more. So God continues. And in verses 6 to 14, he speaks not this time of the physical creation, but he speaks about justice and morality. This is verse 8. This is what God says to Job. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? All the discussion between Job and his friends have been about who's right and who is wrong. The friends have said, well, God cannot do the wrong thing. Therefore, Job must have done the wrong thing and God is punishing him. And Job's reply has been, well, I haven't done anything wrong. Therefore, God needs to give me an answer as to why this has happened. I want to go face to face with God so that I can show that I am right and that God has punished me unjustly. Now, in both of these systems of thinking, there's this implicit belief that either Job or God must be in the wrong. But what if neither of these things is true? In verses 9 to 14, God challenges Job to punish the proud and the wicked. Is Job able to exercise judgment on all those who disobey God? Is he able to punish and even kill them all? You see, there's, there's two problems here. Firstly, can Job physically do it? Is he strong enough to bring justice to the earth? But secondly, is he able to do it justly and fairly? Has he got the power to discern who the wicked are, to discern what punishment they all deserve, to balance justice and mercy? And now we see the point of all God's talk of the physical creation. God asks, do you understand and control the physical universe? What makes you think then that you understand all the complexities of justice and morality and suffering? Do you want to be in charge of those issues and sort them out your way? There's a depth and a complexity to the way that God runs things in the world that we're not privy to and, and perhaps we couldn't even understand if he explained it to us. We might at times cry out, well, if I were God, I would not do things that way. But here God challenges us by asking whether our way of doing things would be better than his way. If we, again, think of the physical universe as an example, we don't have to go far to see that our attempts as humans at running the world are not always the best. In the 1930s in Queensland, they had an environmental problem. Uh, cane beetles, a native species to Australia, uh, these cane beetles were damaging the sugar cane crops. 
uh, adult cane beetles eat the leaves of the sugar cane, but the greater damage is done by the larvae hatching underground and eating the roots, which either kills or stunts the growth of the plant. So what do you do about this, this problem? This evil beetle, uh, which is so destructive and damaging? Well, they had a brilliant solution to root out this problem. Let's introduce cane toads, which eat cane beetles, and it'll be problem solved. Well, it's true, we don't have a problem with cane beetles anymore. What we have is a much bigger problem, cane toads, an invasive species which causes terrible harm to native animals. Cane toads have now spread throughout most of Queensland, west through the Northern Territory to the Kimberley region in Western Australia, as well as south as far down as the mid-north coast of New South Wales. It's this massive environmental problem to solve. So our solution to one problem, let's introduce cane toads to rid ourselves of cane beetles, has been hugely damaging. We didn't realise what an impact this would have on numerous ecosystems. Because we don't realise the, the physical and the environmental complexity of the earth. So what about the moral and ethical complexity of human societies? Would we really want free reign to remove suffering by rooting out injustice and destroying evildoers? Or is it possible that there are complexities that we haven't understood? That by doing this, we would fail to leave room for grace and mercy. In the same way that God does surprising things, like sending rain to a desert where no one lives, so too, he doesn't always just strike down an evildoer, but he allows time for that person to come to repentance and to receive mercy and forgiveness. Now, this may not have been the answer that Job was looking for. This may not be the answer that we're looking for, but it's the answer that God gives us. God says to Job, perhaps it's not a question of one of us being right and the other one being wrong. It's possible that you are indeed innocent, but that I'm not in the wrong either. That my plans, the way that I order the world, the way that I bring justice goes beyond what you are able to comprehend, but will ultimately bring good in the end. I think here we learn that God's plans are bigger and are more complex than we can fully understand. I'm afraid there will always remain an element of mystery about suffering. We might ask why God in his sovereign power has allowed a world where suffering can exist and why God doesn't remove all suffering right now. But Job shows us that there is much that we don't understand about this world and about the plans of God. Why has God allowed a world where suffering can exist? Uh, this is the heart of what you might call the philosophical problem of evil. Right? To say that God is all-powerful doesn't mean that God can do things that are 
logically impossible. You may be familiar with the classic question that people ask, you know, can God create a rock that is so heavy that even he can't lift it? But that's a nonsense statement. It's it's a logical impossibility. So it doesn't limit God's power at all. It's, It's like asking if God can make a square circle. Of course he can't because it's not a thing. It's a nonsense set of words. So God being all powerful still means that he can't create a world with mutually contradictory things in it. Specifically, God has to choose between good things which cannot logically coexist. If God had created a world without the possibility of evil in it, then he would have had to remove some other good thing from it. What is this other good thing that God chose for his world? Well, there's different answers to this. One answer is human free will. God could have eliminated evil by by creating humans as robots who couldn't make free choices. But is that an existence that we would want? That is less good. But you see, if humans have the ability to choose, then we have the ability to choose wrongly, to choose evil, to choose selfishness, to choose to reject God himself. But would you rather be a robot and reject the possibility to choose? Uh, Another good thing that God has chosen for the world is the growth of our character. It's often through adversity and persevering through difficult times that we grow the most and develop good character. Lots of people who've been through terribly hard times say, well, I wouldn't have chosen those circumstances and I certainly wouldn't wish them on anyone else, but I wouldn't change them either because they've grown me into the person I am today and I'm thankful for that. My friend Mark spent a year lying in bed with chronic fatigue. It put his whole life and career on hold. But it also changed him in profound ways. It gave him a depth of empathy, compassion, and and patience that were, were tangible. It deepened his dependence on God and it rooted out a number of sins and character flaws. He was noticeably not the same person at the end of that terrible experience, but it was for the better. In God's sovereignty, he's set up a world where humans do have the ability to choose. And we do grow and develop through challenge and adversity. We can say, well, if I was God, then I wouldn't allow suffering. But we'd instead have to choose to eliminate some other incompatible good. And would that really make a better world? As God says to Job, do you really understand all the complexities of this world? Can you really run the world better than I do? Now, this stretches our brains to wrestle with, that's okay. 
I don't think we'll ever fully nail it down. But Christian thinkers over the centuries have wrestled with these questions and given us some good answers. Indeed, in my view, Christianity gives us the best answer to this question, better than any other worldview, as they also try and wrestle with this hard question of suffering. So God in his sovereign power has allowed a world where suffering can exist. But why doesn't God remove all the suffering right now? Remember that cry from the Psalms, how long, O Lord, in a world full of sin, evil and injustice, we want God to punish evildoers and bring justice and to do it now. Right? Why doesn't God crush the Hitlers, the Pol Pots, the Putins? Again, the sovereign God says to Job and to us, you can't fully grasp the complexity of the physical universe. What about the immense complexity of the moral and ethical universe? See, sin and evil and injustice are not just out there and in them, they're also here and in there. God needs to do something about sin, evil, injustice and suffering. But thankfully, he couples his justice with his mercy, love and grace. Otherwise, none of us would escape. Because we're not just victims of suffering. We're also contributors in the suffering of others. In God's sovereign plans, he does deal with suffering by himself entering the world in Jesus in order to suffer. He experiences evil, injustice, pain, abandonment, and even death as he goes to the cross. And he's patient in allowing time before Jesus returns to finally bring justice. Time for people to repent and to turn to him. We'll talk more about the end of suffering next week. Now, it might not have been the way that you or I would have chosen to do it, but God is bigger and wiser, and he knows all the complex moving parts better than we do. We need to trust him within the complexity and uncertainty, even when we don't fully understand it. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Just search for St. John's Diamond Creek.